Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome, guys. I'm really glad you're here with us today. Today, I'm talking with another classmate about her four-minute presentation that she did in our Women in the New Testament class. And I want to tell you right up front that Terry's work may trigger some of you because she's talking about abuse that silenced her and how that abuse impacted her relationship with the church and Jesus. And she then tells us also how she started to find healing. At the end of this episode, she shares her golden nugget about how we can find, embrace, and use our own voices. And I got to tell you, it's golden. But before we get to Terry, I want to mention and encourage those of you who minister to others to check out some of the offerings we have. You can go to the marcellaproject.com and just find things on the website. I would love, love, love to encourage you in your vocation. And also, I want to remind you that you can join us and continue this conversation that we're having by going to the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page. I'll be posting Terry's poem there, and trust me, you're going to want to read it and reread it. So now, on to Terry. Welcome, Terry. I am so glad to have you here with us this morning. Um, well, introduce yourself a little bit to our community of listeners. First of all, I want you to tell us uh, you're in your second half of life and mm-hmm. just like me, and you've gone back to seminary. And so tell us, uh, you know, like, was that what you've always done as ministry work or what were you doing before you went back to seminary? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't ministry work because I avoided the church in some ways for a long time, um, at least internally, even if I was there. Um, I used to teach, and then I stayed home with my children and raised them. And then when they, when my girls were in college age, there were just some tough things that we were going through, and it seemed like. I reflected back on this conservative evangelical teaching and I was like, what is it that I have been through? What, what do I believe? Where are the narratives coming from of the teaching that they're doing? And I really wanted to know for myself what the New Testament says. And um, so uh, I I had actually wanted to go to seminary earlier at DPS, and when my kids were in middle school, it was just not the right time um, for our family. And I'm glad I waited. 
I'm glad you waited too, because now we're in class together. I know, I know. We're having tons of fun. <laughs> it is tons of fun, isn't it? I know we're one of these yeah. few geeks that think going back to seminary is like, woohoo. Yeah. Not I a, know. It's fun. I'm with you. I love learning and I love digging into the scriptures and I love hearing from other people and learning from other women. It's been fabulous. Well, mm-hmm. one of the things that we did in our last class that we had together, which was women in the New Testament, we had to give a four-minute presentation about something that we had read that provoked a movement in us, and we had to present it to class. And you did a poem, and I love what you wrote. Um, I should probably tell our listeners that you actually are a writer, and you're writing, mm-hmm. you're writing on a team right now for someone who's somewhat famous that our listeners might know. And her name is? Ann Voskamp. Ann Voskamp. Yes. Uh, I'm excited to be on the internship. That's awesome. And so um, you presented this poem. And when I heard it, I thought, oh, my gosh, our listeners need to hear it. So I've invited you on to read it to them. And then I'd love to ask you a few questions afterwards. Would that work? That that will work absolutely well. I first want to say that my my week of my presentation originally was on um, it's on Timothy where it talks about women being silent or a woman being silent, and so that uh, was a catalyst for this piece. All right. Well, let's let's listen in. Ladies and gentlemen out there, you want to pay attention, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to want to rewind this and listen to it again and again and again. Lamenting the Theology of Silence. A cheap poster pinned to the kitchen wall was a family motto, our family call. A New England fall by a calm lake. How could the message carry so much weight? The font read, the beginning of wisdom is silence. But we were steeped in domestic violence. The faded print from the Salvation Army brought more harm to our family. It could have hung in churches I've attended, though in mint condition, a framed focus on the family first edition, near the American flag in foyer, sparkly clean, a common 97 evangelical scene. Is it just a message to hold your tongue to be wise, or pressure to be silent in a prized disguise? For many women I know that tell, silence hasn't served them well. It's beyond a hallmark proverb of pleasantry. It feels like a toxic spin from the John Wayne infantry. Why so much pressure to be silent, unless there are things you're hiding? With whom or what are you abiding? Or do you fear losing female submission, or our perceived position changing? From women leading and teaching, from pastoring and preaching, the issue is cloaked as a question of women in ministry. The language of whether you will allow women tells me the decision is already weighted by men. Your words of allowing rather than supporting gifting is telling. It doesn't grasp the gospel's compelling message of the new identity because you've been selling a white male entity as if it's God's ordained destiny. But the Bible says that God gives all. Ethnicity and chromosomes don't deter the spirit's ability. Our race and gender are not your liability. Women should not be put on hold, told they're too much, too bold, not enough or not able to serve at the Lord's table. It ignites thoughts that you don't belong, that you're not 
chosen. Don't believe the lies disguised with a thousand alibis. You've been excluded because of gender. Why don't they hear Jesus defending her? My heart breaks in this hermeneutical wake that silences women and excludes half in the communities for the protection of male-only opportunities. You say it's tradition and church policy, but I wonder how your theology lines up with exerting power over others when Christ laid his down. But power's a potent drug for us, our golden calf preventing justice. Peace gets watered down to conformity, not the biblical flourishing for all, which is our call to bear the image of God. But the church structures and patriarchy reveal your bowing to a man-made hierarchy. You've hijacked Jesus, but he's not at the top. Jesus created this one new humanity, a tenet of Christianity, that dissolved the status barriers of Babylon so we could be carriers of good news and live on in an empire as a people marked by inclusive love and unity, where ethnicity, status, and gender do not determine leadership for siblings in the new community. But silencing voices of the oppressed, robbed of choices, created a culture of disunity in Christ. Do we resemble a body with an autoimmune disease? I used to agree, but wonder now if it's beyond that. It's more like leprosy, because as the disease progresses, you get nerve damage and can't feel pain. In our plastic divisiveness, we can annihilate without remorse for our own gain. When we lose empathy for our brothers and sisters, we're on dangerous enemy terrain. This theology of silencing others has led to abusing women in churches, villainizing our sisters and brothers of color. It has rippled into our culture and slept with politicians, birthing white nationalism that's circling the air like vultures looking for people to peck and devour, like Putin rolling tanks over the banks into Ukraine. He also used violence and threats to silence the people speaking truth to power. Truth is crucial for faith and justice, but you treat it like an inebriated guest that you shove out the door so you can curate a narrative of your choice. But it's not like the redemptive voice of Christ, who sometimes now seems forsaken. May we awaken. It is God's church. It is God's table. The church will stand the gates of hell will not prevail, even if the gates are of our own making. Amen. Woo! It's good, girl. That is good. I love it. I've heard it several times. I've read it several times. Still loves it. Still gives me goosebumps. In fact, I think, and I said this to you in class, we need to get Amanda Gorman, the lady who spoke the poem in the inauguration. Mm-hmm. We got to have her do that poem. You know, I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. But, um, so... Tell, tell our audience why you wrote this poem, um, and you're centering on 1 Timothy 2, where it says that women are to be silent, to not have authority, or be silent, and to be silent, I should say. Um, tell us why you chose to write this poem. Well, I, I grew up in a uh, patriarchal family with um, alcoholism and domestic violence. And so I didn't see the value of being female, first of all, and our, my voice was not welcome. And so um, 
and I went to a church where there were leaders that were um, sheep dressed, no, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Um, and when I spoke truth to that, I was asked to leave. And so those early experiences, especially the church, because I expected that to be different, um, really set in my life this difficulty of finding my voice or trusting my voice or I would um, I would just start to dismiss it myself because I was taught that it wasn't a valuable gift. And as I studied church history and, and read like Jesus and John Wayne, I saw how this this silencing of others has just brought so much shame and harm over and over again. Uh, so that's that's why you tackle why I, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Because our, our work in seminary, which many people may not know this, but our work in seminary, although we're digging into heady stuff, um, we are also saying, what does this have to do with my real life, right? Like where where is the rubber meet the road? Um, like right now I'm doing an assignment, so are you, in our next class, and it's on motherhood. And, and the question we're being asked is, does, does Christians have anything to say about gender? And I'm like, well, yeah, because we're embodied beings. And how we talk about motherhood has everything to do with um, being in a body, right, being gendered. So um, I, I, I just want to point out that, yes, we're reading heady things and we're doing heady things, but we're also, it's very personal. This is very personal. Mm-hmm. Um you mentioned in the poem this poster in your kitchen wall, and the slogan mm-hmm. on that poster was, the beginning of wisdom is silence. So I, too, grew up, grew up in an abusive home. Um, but miraculously, not even miraculously, it was a, a purposeful thing my mother created, but we had um, a voice, even in domestic violence. Um, but I think I'm abnormal in that. I think... Most people's story more aligns with yours. So share with us a little bit about what that was like to be a little girl where your voice wasn't allowed. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, first of all, I hated being female because of it. Um, and I have three older brothers. So there was this, like, I wish I had not been born a female. Mm. <laughs> um and the the message, the beginning of wisdom is silence. Is it was just so difficult to navigate with respect to what was going on, and then um, what was going on in the church that I attended. Um, what it was like is I I felt like even though my body was growing as I aged. I was having to contain myself in some ways and become smaller or constricted mm. to to not say things that would create more problems. Create more more and abuse. So, yeah. Right, yeah, for somebody in the family. Right. Um and um yeah, it was it was just it was just really difficult and I 
And your voice is such a personal thing. And so I think part of it was for me, I learned to talk like, like I talk in my head, like most people do. It's just, I filter so much of what I say or did. I don't, I don't filter that. hardly anything anymore. It's, and, and when I'm 70, <laughs> it's going to get less. Like, I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I told my girls the same thing. <laughs> Age there, is a beautiful no thing. There's no telling what may, I may say at any given point in time. Because I'm done with that. I'm done with that. That's exactly right. But, you know, it's interesting that you say that because when I did research on voice, um, and again, I want to say to the audience, y'all know that doesn't mean just what's coming out of your mouth, right? Words. Because voice is really this idea of you have um, a narrative thought life that's going on inside. You have stuff going on inside and you bring it forward and offer it out into the world. So voice, which is also done through your body, is, is this bridge, if you will, from your inner life to your outer life, right? It's also what allows us to be known by others, right? Like how much we're going to offer up inside us to another um, is about vulnerability, is about how safe they are. It's about being known. Like if you don't offer up enough, you're not going to be known if you keep everything silent inside, right? Which Mm -hmm. in your family, you were basically taught to do that. Basically Mm -hmm. keep it inside, which then impacts intimacy and knownness within a family, right? Because you're not actually sharing what's going on inside you in any level. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you mentioned the church and you, if I remember us talking one time about this, you basically went to the church as a young woman. Um, I want to say like 14, 13. Uh, when I disclosed it was I was 16. 16. But you, did you, were you raised in a church, in a home that took you to church? Not really. Um, My parents went to church, I think, before um, I was four. But as, like, in domestic violence, usually it progresses. And so we were kind of more isolated Mm -hmm. as time went on and didn't really have people over because that was unpredictable. Um, and so I started going to church with a friend and the first time I I went was, I was in the fifth grade and then I started going with my friend regularly in the sixth grade. And so you go to church and probably in hopes of finding a safe place and a place of restoration and redemption from a home that's volatile. And instead of that, you experienced abuse again in the church from the church. Right. And I think, and I did feel belonging with the youth group. And it was the first time I felt belonging and like, oh, this is, there's a different way to live. And um, I can talk here and not filter. I mean, you still filter things, but it's, I just felt welcomed. But it was, it was also a train wreck that I didn't see coming. Mm Mm-hmm. And so now, so then this abuse occurs, you leave the church, but you were silenced. Share a little bit about what it feels like to be silenced um, from a leadership in a church. And, and by the way, many of us have experienced being silent. Mm-hmm. It's just different degrees and for what. Um, but yeah. I think I left... 
I was when I was asked to leave, um, I felt like I wasn't worth the time or the energy to invest in what the truth was. I wasn't I wasn't valuable as a member of Christ's body. Um, I just I really just felt meaningless. Mm. I'm sorry. And tons of shame. And there's tons of shame when you're silenced. Yeah. Yep. And I think so many women and, and men just have felt that in ch- in church, unfortunately, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, with the Church 2 movement that coincided with the Me Too movement, there has been, um, once again, I want to say, an awareness of what kind of abuse is going on in our churches I'd like to say it was the first time it's ever come to the forefront, but it's not. We've had other seasons in which we've seen and heard of this rippling effect of, of men falling from abusing in their churches. Um, but it really wasn't until the Church 2 movement that we saw some momentum of where women were being believed, uh, although beaten up along the way of being believed. <laughs> Oh, man, you know, don't even get me started. I'm going to do a whole series on uh, church abuse at some point. But um, for now, let me ask this. So, you know, not safe at home, not safe at church. How, and here you are in seminary in your second half of life studying Jesus and the New Testament. There are miracles. (laughs) There are miracles. (laughs) So, you know, tell me a little bit about how that impacted your faith journey. Because you're a young girl, you find Christ, you go to the church, you start belonging, there's abuse, and you're silenced. Now what do we do with Jesus and his people? Right, and I used to call them church people. (laughs) Um, I, I honestly didn't know what to do with Jesus. I didn't stop believing in God. I had asked for a Bible when I was nine for Christmas and learned that I could read that even though I didn't understand it, but there were, there were places I could turn to, um, and I could, and I, I didn't have a lot of people left in my life at that point, really very, very few. Um, so I continued to pray and I, would ask God to help me be loving that day, um, help me get through high school. And so I, I think when I left, I left home. Um, I went to a Catholic university, which was very different for me. And so I think God used that like as a backdoor to encourage me in some ways. I used to go to the chapel at night and, and sit and pray but I honestly kept Jesus at, at a distance for a long time um, so I get married and I'm like oh you have two daughters and my husband's whole family goes to church and I, I really appreciate their deep faith and I still want that for my girls so I go most times and I just, uh, but I'm very guarded. So it's, 
It's like, I'm going to sit in the back row. I'm going to sit near the exit. I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah. Because I, and it, it's just triggering. And yeah. I, I, but I also, I was also very watchful of my girls, you know, knew, just followed the youth leader very closely, talked to them before they interviewed through about my own story. Um, not in too much detail, but enough for them to know. That you're watching them. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm watching them and I'm watching others in the church. So. Wow. Wow. So when do you feel it like... Really, it really hurt trust. I mean, it just really destroyed trust. Of course. Yeah, of course. On both sides. I mean, in your internal, your, 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 your family life. And then your church family life. I mean, that's a double whammy. It's a double whammy. Yeah, of course it ruptures the trust and and, and brings tremendous shame. Right. But I think also with church, because the church teaches that truth matters, then, then when you speak of truthful things and it's, and they don't listen, it's like, well, does truth matter? Like, You said it mattered, yeah. I think a lot of us felt that way even when Trump was elected, right? Because it oh, it's conser- yeah. <laughs> conservative evangelicals have always ban- uh, you know, had the banner of purity and stay sexually pure. And, and then all of a sudden we, you know, and when Clinton did what he did, we went off on him. Well, great, right? All right, whatever. Then we bring in Trump and, and our brothers seem to just totally forget that we were the ones that talked about, if you will, truth, although in that sense it was sexual purity. And we're all kind of going, wait, mm-hmm. did, did, didn't you teach us that that was a character mattered and now it doesn't matter? It's that whole like, what? I have to, re- yeah. I, you have to recalibrate the narrative you've been handed. So when did you start okay. to merge, like, and maybe you haven't yet, but, you know, merge Jesus back into the story. And I'm guessing part of your problem with Jesus is he's male. He's fully male, but he's also fully right. God. And so he represents masculine mm-hmm. maleness to you, right? So, yeah, like when and if have you been able to reconcile with Jesus the man? Well, I in our church when the girls were in high school, uh, Doug and I were invited to a life group. It wasn't the first time. We've often been invited to life groups. And I was just like, "Mm, I don't know. They're church people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, um, and so we went to this life group and it was, it was more like what I think the early church was. And we shared uh, the, we shared our life stories. We met one Saturday and, we each took turns doing our life story. And then after we gave our story, we were surrounded by the whole group and prayed over. And, you know, we ate breakfast together. Then we ate lunch together. I mean, we spent the from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. Wow. doing this because that was the time frame that worked for our life group. But we, when, what happened in that was I could speak my story and be welcomed. And, but also in challenge because they know my strengths and weaknesses and history. And I could also see my brothers and sisters there and be like, oh, that's why that person reacts so strongly as God the Father. 
because his father had committed suicide. And it's like when you learn things about each other and you learn through story, um, it impacts you. So I now had these brothers in this life group who, who were not, who where truth did matter and treated me very differently than I had been treated before. Um, and that began that healing journey. Yeah, I love that idea that God chose to use men to redeem how men have harmed you, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. He did the exact same thing with me. I would start going to church in Dallas and I, you know, I always thought that every man cheated, every man was abusive. That's just how men are and um I expected it to be a part of my marriage and then, you know, I uh I, I met these really godly men who actually not only believed in truth, and when we say believe truth, it wasn't just an intellectual assent, was it? They were actually living it out. Their actions backed what they believed. So there was uh, cohesiveness, if, if you will. Um, and I, and I, I remember observing and being like a little cognitive dissidence. Like, I, can, can men be good like this? You know, like it was, but it took time. But over and over again, God kept parading, if you will, these worthy men in front of me. And it really redeemed my understanding of manhood, um, which I think is beautiful. Um, Andy did it in community. I just read this book about collective care. And instead of like individual care, we have collective care. And I, what you're describing there is this idea that healing happens in community. Um, Mm -hmm. not full, you know, there's lots of other things, counseling for me, it was running a lot, you know, (laughs) pounding my feet on the pavement. Yeah. All the counseling (laughs) for it, for it, for it. Absolutely. But healing takes a lot of healing can take place just by speaking, by sharing ourselves, right? Bringing the inner to the outer, Mm -hmm. having it received because it's vulnerable, having it received well can create it's collective care and it creates healing in many ways. Um, so over and over again in your poem, you talk about the silencing of voice. And I want to like close out with this last question. Um, well, yeah, no, I have two questions. One, what, where do you see your voice now? Like what does voice feel like to you today? Um, and then for those listening, what's one golden nugget about voice that you'd like to ask them to consider moving into? You know, like, um, how am I trying to say that? There, one way they can start having freedom in bringing forth their voice, if, and from your own experience. So you've learned to be silent, and now you have a voice. What? What part of that trajectory do you want to offer them? So, yeah, that's what I would say is, how do you see your voice today? I always ask really light questions, by the way. <laughs> I know. I was like, I was working on the second one. Let's do the second one first. Okay, second one first. Say it again. So, you know, you have learned to go from having a silent voice to having a voice. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a journey. You've learned things about mm-hmm. how to... Em, find, embrace, and use your voice. Uh, what mm-hmm. from that journey, what golden nugget from that journey would you like to offer over to our listeners in hopes that they too would start to find, embrace, and use their voice? 
So two things come to my mind. Um, one is that you may have a conflicted relationship as with yourself as you start to use your voice. Where it's like, I one, you're not sure, is this my voice or is this someone else's? Or you may feel like, this is my voice, but I don't like it. Or, and so I think there, I think that's a journey in it of itself of where we're probably always going to find our voice. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I think that was really helpful for me is to find, especially women for me, who use their voice really well and in a God honoring way, but not in a submissive, like, dismissive way and so I uh, one group that 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 I found healing in that Lisa Sharon Harper's writing group because you read you write on Saturday mornings and then the last hour you take turns reading your stuff which is a very vulnerable very vulnerable yep very and you get feedback and they have been very encouraging uh, with my writing voice so I think the, that for me, that's what works. Um, if you if you were a singer, you would do that with people that sing, um, I, I would imagine. Yeah. I love what you said in the first part, which is the idea that um, you might feel conflicted. And I think actually that's very, very true. And part of mm-hmm. that is because our culture, uh, if you find your voice and your, well, first of all, you're changing, you're changing paths, right? So if People, right. are, people around you are not happy that you're changing changing the pattern. Um, but secondly, right. uh, we know for a fact that women's voices are not welcome at the table. They're not. And so, and that starts at age 11 for girls in America. We actually are taught to get quieter and to take up less mm-hmm. physical space. Um, and so, you know, we, and, and, and we know this in the workplace and I know for experience in ministry, it's the same thing. Like you can be physically sitting at the table, but you're more interrupted as a woman, you're less listened to as a woman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So once you start to exert, and by the way, when we say exert your voice, I don't, it doesn't have to be a loud voice. You don't have, I'm not talking about tone. I'm talking about being Mm -hmm. able to sit in a chair and offer up to the community around you, what's going on inside you with confidence, regardless of how they receive Mm -hmm. it. And often they don't receive it well because they don't like the way it sounds. Like for me, I'm assertive Mm -hmm. and that, and confident. And that, that actually um, undoes people sometimes because they don't Mm -hmm. expect a woman, particularly a Christian woman to have those characteristics when she uses her voice. So yeah, you're going to be internally conflicted, but also there's some external things that are going to push back on you too. So it takes some extra might, if you will, to continue mm-hmm. to find it and exert it, even when people don't want to hear it, right? Um, right. And again, I want to say to those listening, that doesn't mean like go stomping into the boardroom and hear me roar. And, and I say that because mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't behave that way, right? Um, um, but the second thing I love what you're basically saying is we need to see models of it and then find a community where we get invited to form our voice. Um, and it can be friendships. It doesn't even have to be vocationally driven, right? 
That's right. a that's right. a beautiful one of the reasons I never let men come to our Bible studies um, previously was because I knew in my dissertation work that um, there's study after study after study that shows that in the evangelical community, when a woman and a, when women and men are together in a mixed gendered room, women will defer their voice to the men when they're talking about right. Bible and doctrine, et cetera. And I knew there was power in women being able to literally hear themselves come up with ideas inside about what the scripture said and how that engages with Jesus and what that has to do with their personal life. And then being able to bring it forth was growth and development of their voice. Um, and I didn't want it squashed. So I think that, you know, you're, you're spot on. We need to be in spaces where we're, our voices are welcome. So we'll end on this last question, which is, so what do you think of your voice today? Oh, I am gaining appreciation for my voice. Um, I feel like it's getting stronger. And, and I believe that Jesus invites me to speak. Um, he invites me to use my voice, which I didn't. That was, that's been a surprising thing to learn mm. about you who I'm now befriended with. Yeah. Oh, Jesus so invites women to speak. And all we have to do is Mm -hmm. actually look for the women in the New Testament around him and we'll see. Mm -hmm. And we have to pay attention because they're not, their stories aren't as loud as some of the men's, right? But if you really pay attention, what you're watching is Jesus inviting women to use their voices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really like him. Okay, I'm going to close this out. Thank you, Terry, for being with us, being vulnerable, sharing your poem. Terry is um, going to allow me to post it on the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page. You may not steal it. You can only give her credit, but you can read it and reread it and re-listen to it here if you want to. Um, and I just want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And I pray like crazy. You find, embrace, and use your voice. Have a great day. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.